Hello, I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. This will be the best commission of my life. Finally, I can build the modern city. I have a big sky. I have an incredible landscape and very gentle people. In this episode, I speak with Maristella Cassiato, Senior Curator of Architectural Collections at the Getty Research Institute, in the first of a two-part series on modern architecture in India. After the partition of India in 1947, Punjab was divided between India and Pakistan, leaving Lahore, the historic capital of Punjab, in the territory of Pakistan. Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru was suddenly faced with the challenge and opportunity of designing Chandigarh, the new capital city of Punjab, and the first great city of independent India. And for this, he turned to Swiss-French architect Le Corbusier. Le Corbusier was perhaps the most famous architect of his time. He had recently collaborated on the design of the United Nations Secretariat Building in New York City, had been asked by the government of Colombia to create a master plan for its capital city, Bogota, was working on the final phase to the Unité d'Habitation in Marseille, and was beginning to work on the chapel at Ronchamp. The decision to hire Le Corbusier to lead the design of Chandigarh and its capital buildings was a sign that Nehru wanted to prove to Indians, and to the world, that the newly independent India was the equal of any great nation on earth. I recently traveled to Chandigarh to meet with colleagues at Punjab University, where the Getty Foundation has a project supporting the conservation plan of the Gandhi Bhawan, a remarkable building designed by Le Corbusier's cousin, Pierre Genaret. While there, I also visited the capital buildings designed by Le Corbusier. On my return, I spoke with Maristello Cassiato of the Getty Research Institute, an architectural historian specializing in the modern period and a leading authority on the work of Le Corbusier. We sat around a desk in my office looking at photographs of Le Corbusier's buildings in Chandigarh. So I want to talk about the particulars of the project, but I first want to talk about the commission. That's an extremely important part of this, of course, because it gets the project moving, but it's also representative of the ambition of the Indian government post-independence to choose the iconic architect of international modernism, Corbusier, to do the plan of the new capital city of Punjab. So tell us about the commission itself. How was it he got the commission? The commission is something that, in a way, surprised an already aged Le Corbusier in uh, around the end of 1950. He was at the time 62, very involved in many projects in France, specifically for the reconstruction, and politically very close to some of the members of the government, specifically Claudius Petit, who was the Minister of Reconstruction. This is post-war This is post-war. Yeah. This is post-war. France Reconstruction. And you have to think that the major building of this Reconstruction is, is Unité d'Habitation in Marseille. Now, reinforced concrete... Um, Beton Brut, all that kind of new architectural language at the time. Now, how does a man like de Corbusier get into India? That's the question. Probably this has to do already with the fact that he is a renowned architect, definitely, uh, well-known, but more with what you mentioned, the ambitions 
of Nehru for his new nation, the India of post-independence. Now, there could have been other architects or town planners who could have been selected. And this, I would say, um, that it's an important division. I mean, Le Corbusier is, in this case, the architect and the planner, Why, at the time, there were very important town planners that could be also uh, be contact for this commission. And isn't, isn't the first person contacted an American town planner, Albert Meyer? The first to be contacted is Albert Meyer. Albert Meyer is a town planner, and specifically, he doesn't deal with building, construction. He's very much interested in the urban fabric. And he would have been a very, very smart choice, and he had been a, a choice at the beginning. Then some situation changed also for Albert Meyer, who was very much involved at the same time in New York City with big commissions. The architect that he selected for being his partner in the project, um, Novichki, he died in an aircraft crash. So there was all this situation happening at the same time. But I want to add something else that we need to think. The Indian administration under Nehru in the 50s is a very cultivated administration. Most of the people educated in, in England, of course, UK, but very, very sophisticated in thinking. And specifically, the administration of the government of Punjab had Tapar, someone who was playing the role almost of a vice minister for the administration who had very wide idea, very large idea for what Punjab could become within the new India. Uh, there's two things about this, I think. One is, of course, it borders on Pakistan, so there must be extremely important defensively. There's a military presence in Chandigarh, for example. But equally so, when we're talking about planning Chandigarh, we, we're talking really about planning it from scratch. There was very little there. It was an open plain Is that right? Uh, it is absolutely that the image that the two architects traveling from Europe to Chandigarh, they will find. I mean, it's a very beautiful in terms of landscape. It's a plain. You see the Shivalik Hills and then the Himalaya as a background. It's full of trees. It was with many villages, but very little communities, uh, really devoted to agriculture, but something that was very much touching Le Corbusier in terms of his first approach. He saw for the first time the villages, the adobe houses, the Punjabi women are not very colored in their dressing, but of course they have some of the flavor of the Indians. So all this is very often reported, for instance, in all his letters, the letters that he sends from Chandigarh to his office, to his wife, 
to his mother. He talks about the great enterprise. This will be the best commission of my life. Finally, I can build the modern city, but this is also the perfect environment. I have a big sky. I have an incredible landscape and very gentle people. So this is something very, I mean, unusual for someone who is at the time when he reaches Chandigarh for the first time, he's 63. I yeah. mean, so already. So, so who, but who does give him the commission? Is it Nehru who gives it to him? Nehru allows Mr. Tapar and the chief engineer of his office in New Delhi to go on a mission to Europe starting uh, in London. And over there, they are talking to architects, and immediately the name of Le Corbusier is on the table. Maxwell Fry, who had worked already for the British administration in the British Africa, is the one who says, Le Corbusier is the architect who can accomplish what you are expecting, the modern city of the 20th century. And so, I mean, out of these ideas coming from different people, they finally decide to contact Claudius Petit, the Minister of Reconstruction in France, and to go and visit Le Corbusier. And this is happening in November 1950. So there, it's a mission. Of course, they have a mission coming directly from Nehru. But I would say that it's still an interlocutory mission. But when they come back to India and to Delhi, it's basically already clear in their mind that Le Corbusier will be the architect. Does Corbusier have to interview with Nehru before he gets the commission? No. He comes to India with a commission in hand. Basically, he goes to sign an agreement at the Indian Embassy in Paris, December 15, 1950. So the agreement is already there, sketched. Varma and Tapar go back to Nehru, they sketch the agreement, they send it, I mean, it's very fast, incredibly fast for the time. And... Corbu goes and signs. Then he says, well, our first mission will be very exploratory. They reached what will be Chandiga in February 51. And basically, they will spend the second half of February and the first half of March being with Tapar, with Varma, Le Corbusier, Pierre Janaret, and Maxwell Fry. Basically, talking, discussing, visiting the locations, exchanging ideas, and make possible that in basically a month, they all come to an agreement. What the city will be, how many inhabitants, how to plan the residential areas, what does it mean a city center and the capital. Yeah. That was awfully fast for them to be able to do all of that. But there were agreements first with the government as to how often Corbusier would be there, that he would be there for a certain number of times a year, for a certain length of each visit. Uh, but Generet, then his cousin, would be the architect on site. Yes, you are right. Absolutely. If you read the agreement signed in December 50, it's an agreement for three years initially. 
and Le Corbusier will be visiting India twice a year, so every six months, and stay between uh, one and two months, which means that in a year, the first year, he stayed almost four months in India which is quite a long time if you consider he was busy with Ronsham, the chapel, and the convent of La Tourette. So he's very busy, but still he understands that he has to be on site also to guide Pierre Janaret, Max Fry, and the young group of architects that are hiring. Mm-hmm. And Maxwell Fry is married to Jane Drew? And that those two architects together, because they're equal partners are, as architects, are extremely important in the development of the office for the project, is that right? Yeah. Max and Jane Drew, who at the time were a couple, accepted the, at the same condition as Pierre Janaret to be on site and organize the architect's office, build the knowledge for young Indian architects and engineers to keep continuing to work on Chandigarh. And, and this is important because Nehru saw the project as a kind of workshop, didn't he, for which young architects, Indian architects and engineers would be trained on the scale of the new modern ambitions for the state of India. This has been uh, repeated several times, I mean, in different occasions by Nehru. Nehru was very clear, and he was clear also the first time he met Le Corbusier, because Le Corbusier, the certain moment, had different ambitions. He was thinking to invite other Americans and so on. And Nehru was very clear, a workshop for young Indian architects and engineers. So it's a way for him to create the condition for a new class of young professional to be able to continue a mission given to a famous architect, but he knows very well Le Corbusier at a certain moment will not be there forever. Also Pierre Janaret will at a certain moment leave Chandigarh, how to build the ground, a fertile ground, robust for them to build and not to betray the initial ideas. So now we have a a client with the Indian government. We have an architect in Corbusier. We've got a team being built under him uh, by Maxwell Fry and Jane Drew and Pierre Generet. And we've got a growing stable of young Indian architects and engineers Uh, But there's another element in this, and that is the Ford Foundation. Tell us about the Ford Foundation and its role in the development of Chandigarh. Well, um, the Ford Foundation uh, was extremely interested in the changing uh, of the political and cultural uh, landscape in India. So very soon they decided to open the very first agency of the Ford Foundation outside the state in New Delhi. This was an important way to, first of all, be on the site where the changes were happening and also to support other constituencies of the project. Of course, they were not involved in the architecture, in the planning, but they were involved in education. They are very much involved in the building of the hospital, so the healthy conditions and so on. So the Ford Foundation played a major role, 
not specifically or only in Chandigarh, but it was very, very influential behind Nehru in supporting a lot of projects. I mean, for small villages, education, agriculture was very relevant. And Chandigarh is at the center of a very, very fertile plain. So agriculture needed to be developed. Uh, so there were three parts to this commission in Chandigarh. Uh, there was a planning of the city itself, planned for a population of 150,000. Uh, of course, it grew has grown to be much, much larger than that, 150,000. Uh, and Corbusier was given the job of planning the official sectors of the new capital uh, and not the free sectors. The free sectors were given up either to someone else or they were given to allow to be developed independently. Uh, well, this is a very interesting uh, way of thinking how a city can grow and represent the state, but also be open to, uh, as you say, to the free sector. Basically, the plan uh, is described as a grid of sectors. Those sectors are planned to incorporate both the government housing and the private housing. So there is never a separation of all private or all government. The idea is that society needs to mix. That has been a blending. So basically, a sector has a very defined dimension. I can say it only in meters. It's 800 meters for one kilometer and 600. The sector is divided in two subsectors by a commercial street. And in the philosophy of Le Corbusier, it's called the V number four. So it goes from one side of the sector to the other side. Now, when the sector is divided, usually it's also subdivided in different small neighborhood units or villages, how they call, those are the government houses. And it's basically half of the sector. The other half is usually left to private development. But this under the condition that the sector always keep the unity. So even the private sector that comes in respects the V4 as the commercial street, the other subdivision of small streets, the fact that the sector has always a perimeter of major streets that are called V3 in this case. So you see, this is a very smart way of planning where the private is basically encapsulated into the general plane of Chandigarh. I got to Chandigarh from Delhi, and I left Chandigarh to go to Ahmedabad. And in both Delhi and Ahmedabad, everyone said to me, oh, you'll love Chandigarh, because Chandigarh is so well-planned, so spacious. The streets are big and broad. The traffic is organized. Uh, the sounds and the crowds are minimal compared to those of Delhi and Ahmedabad. So the legacy of a planned city still survives today, at least in the minds of, of Indians. Uh, yes. I mean, it's still called the, the, the beautiful city, the green city. Some changes are occurring, I mean, of course, even in the original greed of Le Corbusier. Um, it's interesting how some people who grew in Chandigarh, sometimes they refer to the city in a different way than the way we see it now. Uh, for instance, I recently had someone telling me, Maristella, there has always been 
too much of cement, I mean, too much concrete. You know, it's warm in Chandigarh, it can be very hot. And <laughs> the... The concrete is not the easy kind of texture that you want to have when you are running barefoot or something like this or running after a ball because you're playing football and so on. So I, mean, I can understand these um, situations, but the city is still keeping this character of being ordered, the idea of the order, without being an order that it's imposed. I mean, I think that the people have really been able to accommodate and to integrate with the order. Sometimes, um, I don't know what has been your experience. Sometimes I, I myself get confused because, you know, there are not major, major point of reference. I mean, it's basically an horizontal city. Uh, with a lot of uh, green areas. And sometimes if you miss one of the roundabouts, you may end up in another sector and then you have to do the whole tour around <laughs> to get back. But, I mean, this is still feasible. Yeah, yeah. So there's a, the planning of the city, successful to the extent that it was successful, of course. Uh, there was the design of the great capital complex, which came to include the General Assembly building, the High Court and the Secretariat, and then there was ultimately the planning of the university, much of which he left to generate to develop and design the architecture. But tell us about the university first, and we'll get back to the capital complex. The University of Punjab, first of all, it's a unique experience in terms of planning. It's basically a small town within the town. It has the idea of being a, a town within the city. And so it has the gate, it has the border. It's very well, in a way, think in terms of building the community of the scholars, the professors, the students, and so on. So this is a smart idea, because the, at the beginning, this was the only university in Punjab. So it was attracting people from all over the uh, state, and we should say they had to build the, the university from scratch. I mean, they had, they to, had to build the all the books in the library. As Everything. I was told, they had to negotiate with the former capital, Lahore, now in Pakistan, to divide the books that were in the university library in Pakistan so that a percentage of them came to the Punjab. Yeah. But they had to effectively create faculty, students, buildings, library, laboratories, the whole thing. They create the whole thing, and they created it again with the idea that this should be a small town where the students and the faculty members and the administration could recognize as a living space, a living place. And then Pierre Janare was in charge of the commission with the architects of the architect office, specifically one architect that should be mentioned also for the Gandhi Bhavan, whose name is Matur. But in fact, what they thought, it was, okay, let's see what are the major components of building a small town. The idea was to build the core of the Punjab University campus, and the core had to be easily recognized. So how do we build the core? We build the core with the main university library, the Gandhi Bhavan, the Gandhi Bhavan yeah. and the main administration building. These three major buildings are then unified through a cross of two major 
uh, roads that are really the backbone of the whole campus and two major gardens. One of these is a rose garden, again, a flower very much dedicated to Pandit Nehru. And then once the core is well defined, they started in a more, I would say, not organic, but the faculty and the schools are close to the core. And then separate from those, I mean, a bit at the distance towards the border, are all the students' dormitory. That time, male and female. And all the students will live on the campus. And then you have shops for them. So all kind of facilities that would allow them, in a way, really to create a life within the university. I mean, I think perhaps for our podcast listeners, uh, they can imagine uh, a University of California campus being built in the 1960s, like at Santa Cruz or at Irvine or something, because it looks like that. It's spacious. There's a lot of green. It's a lot of concrete, a lot of brick. There's a student center. Uh, it looks very much like a modern university uh, that was built in California in the 1960s. I, I guess that though um, there has never been really a uh, uh, a comparison, but it is very much the idea of an American campus. Uh, it's very clear when you are there, and also the the way it has been built. I mean, you recognize when you go to Santa Cruz, Irvine. I mean, the the garden at the center, and then all the major building. It is the same uh, kind of idea. Now, how this comes in mind. An architect like Pierre Janaret, this is his first and also only university campus. I think that the administration of the university at the time was extremely advanced. They had something in mind that they discussed uh, with the architect. So some ideas may be also the result with the, the rector at the time. There was also a very important uh, historian uh, to whom the major library is dedicated, Professor Yoshi, who helped in building the library, the collection, and so on. So there were people behind the architect to say the kind of model that we want to have is not the British quadrangle. It's more of an open space, like, as you mentioned, uh, some of the American universities. So we're talking about Corbusier and the the planning of the university was his and Genere, uh, not to mention, I suppose, Fry and Drew. But nevertheless, the construction of buildings uh, were for Le Corbusier principally in the capital complex. There was a museum, of course, an art museum called the Government Museum and Art Gallery. And that was in itself kind of interesting because it's one of those infinitely expandable museums, not dissimilar to the one in Ahmedabad, but also like the Museum of Western Art in Tokyo. But putting that aside, the big thing for him was the capital complex. Uh, which I've already mentioned, uh, in- includes the General Assembly building, the High Court, and the Secretariat. Tell us about that, because th- those things are, uh, as any demonstration or any manifestation of ambition, those three buildings on that big plaza uh, represent that. If there is one location, I think, at Chandigarh that really represents the vision of the new India, that's the capital. Not only because the capital complex, it has to as you say, host the major building like the Secretariat or the Assembly, but because also for Le Corbusier, the location of the capital was extremely important. He knew exactly 
when he first started in Chandigarh, that that was his idea, to build the capital, identifying the identity of the modern city, but also the capital need to be I don't know if you probably noticed, isn't a condition where really the landscape is in a way embracing the capital. You see the, the mountain, you see something that it's on a higher level, and there you put those three buildings. In fact, the idea was also to have the governor palace that never get built. I was told that Nehru said it shouldn't be built because we're finished with having a, a governor palace. There's no more palaces to be built. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And I'm glad that you mentioned because I think that though several people are still thinking that it should be built to complete, I think that we need to respect the idea that the city is for everybody. The city is for the citizen. We don't want to have the governor palace there. I think that the three buildings already create a strong uh, identity of the modern city there. And I always thought, and this always strikes me, how can those three buildings, no matter what you think about the reinforced concrete, the condition and so on, be built they were designed in Paris. All the drawings were sent to Chandigarh. In Chandigarh, the architects under Pierre Janaret, Jane Drew, and Maxwell Fry were requested to do all the construction drawings. And then the construction started. For us, now we see how the, the building industry works, but in the early 50s, to have that kind of magnitude and also quality of the construction in Chandigarh must have been really something where you spend day and night really working. It's basically done because there was a full trust obviously between Le Corbusier and his cousin Pierre, but also because the group of the architects were extremely committed in doing something that would stay for the history, would remain there. It's, it's done for perennity. They understood that. Otherwise, when you see the photograph of all these people, the people are working there. It's a very simple uh, building site. You see donkeys there. The way they do the, the concrete, it's almost by hand. But they are able to build the secretariat. It's a high-rise building. Yeah, describe them, because the buildings are very sculptural in form, and at least the, the, the great courts, the, the legal courts, are very uh, painterly. I mean, they're the bright colors, reds and yellow and greens. So uh, tell, describe the buildings for us. The way I would describe it, it's very sculptural, as you say. It's very colored, but it's technically very sophisticated in a way. Besides Mumbai, there was not a big skill in reinforced concrete knowledge in India at the time. So basically, uh, the construction starts really, as you may imagine, through the foundation. But then, if you notice, the, the main court is like a, a gigantic 
a, a U-shaped building. Yeah, vertically U-shaped. Yeah, it vertically U-shaped. Exactly. Yeah. So basically what they did, this is the infrastructure that they built immediately after the foundation. What they say is the two vertical wall and what they call the parasol, the undulated roof, is the structure that will contain all the small uh, courtrooms and the big one. So that's the way they conceived it, because in a way it was much, I don't want to say easier, but it was the only way they could complete a reinforced concrete structure. What was then built inside, it's something that step by step was added. And the first thing that they did was to connect the different floors through the ramp. So you have to imagine a kind of structure that works with two vertical walls, the parasol roof, and then a ramp that goes uh, the whole section. That is really the building. And they were using an interesting technique of doing the scaffolding, the reinforced concrete, and then they spray the, the concrete. So that's how they do the, the two walls. So they sprayed the concrete onto a structure. Yeah. And then the concrete dried in that exactly. form. Exactly. Yeah. And you still see all the signs of that structure. Now, the problem will become with the how do you do the conservation of a concrete of that kind and so on. How was the color put on the building? Was it mixed in with the concrete? Is it yes. integral to the concrete? Uh, yeah, it was mixed with the concrete. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as I described it, it's extremely bold coloring. And opposite it, in the assembly building, um, there is no color but for the great door, the enamel-painted door that Corbusier himself painted and, as it were, dedicated to the structure. Um, but w- what compelled Corbusier to paint these three big, bold colors to dominate the, the structure of the, the court building? Well, at the beginning, um, he had thought of no color at all because of this purism of the brutalist concrete. Then, he, you know, he always played with the idea of the primary color in his architecture. And initially, the idea was to have the color of, which is still a bad idea, of the Indian flag, really to identify the justice with the Indian flag. So the orange and the green. And, so that's the idea. And also because the Palace of Justice is a Palace of Justice not only of Punjab. It's used by uh, lawyers and judges from different states going beyond Punjab. So we should describe the assembly building because it's, a, as it were, a simpler building with a great big crown on top of it. I don't mean crown in the kind of gold metallic crown, but rather a form that is large, that folds up like a sombrero hat, if one can imagine that. And then rising on the, out from the top of the roof are these two great cone forms. And those cone forms bring light down into separate legislative assemblies. Uh, and and you, then you rise up within the building again by a Corbusier ramp from the ground floor up into those, those assembly rooms. I think he was fascinated by the idea to respond. I'm taking your point about the two volumes on the roof that you see. The uh, One is a pyramid, the other one it's a, a Le Coidal volume. Um, he was 
interested in a way to respond to the landscape with a kind of what he called object with poetic reaction, objet à réaction poétique, is using this in other buildings in Europe, the roof in Marseille or even La Tourette. So the idea of having this two sculpture form could be interpreted as also capturing the light. So what he thinks a canon de lumière could be, something that captures the light and gets the light into an inner space. So there is a, a sculpture gesture that you see on top of this building, crowning, you may say, but also the functional idea. Now, there are other intuitions that probably are coming from other sources. You probably have heard of this fascination near Ahmedabad specifically with some of this conical construction of the industries. He had traveled to Ahmedabad more than once and he had always been captivated by those forms. And those big sort of smokestack forms. Exactly, yeah. exactly. He's also using, I mean, the what he sees around, I mean, you probably noticed that on the front the main facade where you see the animal door, uh, there is a portico. And the portico is basically detached from the building. And the portico has a very interesting roof, which could remind you very easily the horn of all the cows that were around. I mean, he always makes the sketches where... The architectural form and the natural forms are intertwined, I mean, mixed together. So it probably has a lot of suggestions in his imagination coming from what he sees around, but definitely he's very much interested also in leave his signature as a kind of sculptural, formal uh, sign, a signature. Now, you brought up the name Ahmedabad, a city farther south from Chandigarh, south of Delhi. And, and that's a, a city where he has a number of other important buildings. And my understanding is that he was invited down to Ahmedabad by a family, very prestigious and philanthropic and cultured family, the Sarabai family, uh, to, to build a house, the Villa Sarabai, shall we say. And he said that he could only do it if he could get five commissions because it was going to take him away from Chandigarh, it was going to take him away from Paris, and it was going to uh, take time from his practice, of which I think he got four commissions. He got two houses, he got the Mill Owners Association, and he got a museum. How did he divide his time between Chandigarh and Ahmedabad? Well, um, he dedicated more time to Chandigarh than to Ahmedabad, I had to say. He had two very, very, very important collaborators in Ahmedabad. One was Doshi, definitely. Yeah, who's still alive. Who's still alive, who was in the office, who at the beginning was requested to go to Chandigarh, but then as soon as he got invited by the Sarabai, Le Corbusier thought, no, 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 Doshi is more useful in Ahmedabad than in Chandigarh. I already have Pierre Janare in Chandigarh. Let me move Doshi uh, to Ahmedabad. He really valued a lot the commission in Ahmedabad and the Sarabai family. 
Then he had another collaborator from his office, an architect called Vere, who stayed in Ahmedabad for quite a long time and who was traveling Ahmedabad, Paris, and who was basically the one responsible for the mill owner building, which needed a lot of attention, uh, as you see, because it's a rather complex idea of space that have basically not a major function. It's more representation or you have a small room of, with a theater and it's again a promenade architecturale and it's overlooking at the time the river, the Sabarmati. So it's more a, a representative building. Yeah, we should describe it as a, a concrete building that is almost like a series of boxes on top of each other, to which one gains access by way of a large ramp from deep in the garden toward the street, back through the garden, into and through the building, and then winding up within the building. Yeah, it's, a, it's an extraordinary exercise in space. Uh, Space, speciality, I would say, and taking the space from the outside and moving through the whole building. It's basically a section where you can go and walk through the section. It's an incredible exercise that he has never done before. I mean, he does those kind of uh, spatial uh, approach in some of his early projects, but the mill owner, it's really the the apex of his idea of the promenade through the building. It's as if he's in that building uh, exploring something that he would then use afterwards in other buildings. And I'm thinking of the Carpenter Center in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is at first glance quite similar to the Mill Owners Building, although succeeds in time the Mill Owners Building. It's built in the 60s, whereas Mill Owners Building is in the 50s. You know, definitely. I mean, the the mill owners, uh, they were very open to his experimentation. And uh, also the the way he's treating the two facades, the one more towards the street, where you have a certain distance, you have the garden, and then you do have those boxes, but they also have hanging gardens, so they are more protected. And then you go on the back facade towards the river, which was at the time basically completely open towards the the landscape. Now it's changing a lot. We should acknowledge that the family that attracted him to Ahmedabad, the Sarabai family, a great industrialist family, made their fortune on textiles, uh, calico in particular. Uh, and that was in the la- from the latter part of the 19th century through the first half of the 20th century. Then their business interests diversify into a number of other different things. But the generation that attracts him to uh, Ahmedabad is an extraordinary generation from one single family. Uh, we have Gautam, who's a son of the great industrialists, and Gautam is an, himself an industrialist, but a philanthropist in particular, who supports an institute of mental health with uh, his sister Gira. He's an architect, as she's an architect, and they're both important to the National Institute of Design in Ahmedabad, where they get Ray and, and Charles Eames to come and develop not only a program for the building, but a program for the curriculum of the institute. And Gira, her Herself studied with Frank Lloyd Wright and Taliesin West from 1947-1951. She was instrumental in getting not only Eames and Fuller, but also ultimately Lou Kahn to come and work in Ahmedabad. And Fry Otto was a was a con. I mean, they were an extremely cosmopolitan family. Well, the family, it's what really attracts Le Corbusier to go to Ahmedabad. He went in March 51 for the first time. He was really 
interested in meeting the Sarabai. He writes about Gautam and Gira, so he meets with all of them. But the Sarabai family, there were other people so that he was very much interested. He met the Tata industrialists. So it's really the kind of environment where cultivated people, philanthropists, could really nurture him. He was interested in this exchange. As far as I've read in the correspondence, every time, I mean, the exchange with Madame Sarabai, it's very warm. I don't want to say they like each other, they can talk to each other. They know they have something of a common ground to share. Yeah. I mean, it's not only that the family attracts architects, not only of his standing, but the other architects I mentioned, to Ahmedabad, but they bring artists to Ahmedabad. Uh, they bring John Cage, Robert Rauschenberg, David Tudor. Uh, they continue all the way through the next generation to bring all the way up to Eric Fischel, to Linda Benglis, who's actually a partner with one of the children uh, of the Sarabai family. David Tudor brings the first Moog synthesizer into the design school and creates a curriculum around experimental electronic music. And two of their children were great classical dancers uh, and one great, uh, very famous choreographer. So the sophisticated family in Ahmedabad must have countered the somewhat necessarily bureaucratic commission that he had in, in Chandigarh. Uh, well, yes, maybe you can read it this way. I know that... Um in fact, the National Institute of Design in Ahmedabad became really a model for many other schools uh, in India of the same kind. I mean, it's really, in terms of pedagogy, in terms of didactic, I mean, it's really at the avant-garde at the time. And that's just not only because of the Eames. So Le Corbusier, I mean... Uh, knows exactly in what kind of environment he's, to what kind of people he's talking and so on. I have to say that in, in Chandigarh, his collaboration with the two people that came to visit him in Paris, Varma and Tapa, has always been very strong. He's always in contact with these people, exchanging. And in fact, when Tapar and Varma change their position and they are not any longer in Chandigarh, for him it becomes a bit more difficult. He has less people for an exchange. And um, they both become very relevant for the Nehru administration in Delhi, and they have less uh, time to spend in Chandigarh. It's also true that while the commission goes on and on, uh, Le Corbusier at a certain moment travels to Chandigarh but stays a shorter time, and he spends more time uh, in also going to Ahmedabad than we can imagine. Yeah. I mean. But both Chandigarh and Ahmedabad is about eight years of his work, huh? maybe ten years of his ten work. Ten years yeah. of his work. When does he last go to India? When is his commitment to the project finished? Well, in 63, he went to the inauguration of the Assembly Hall in Chandigarh. And at that time, he was with Nehru. They all met there, and it was a big ceremony. And after that, he had another travel in mind, but actually he never did it. I mean, that's that's the end for him. While Pierre Janaret stayed till the end of uh, 64 and then also left Chandigarh. 
Well, it's a great story, and it's a great chapter in the history of modern architecture. It's a great chapter in the history of modern India. Thank you so much for giving us your time this afternoon to talk about both these two great cities, cities of great ambition and great uh, architectural accomplishment. While in India, I spoke with architect B.V. Doshi, who, as you heard from Mary Stella, worked closely with Le Corbusier. You'll hear that conversation in the second part of this series. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur, composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Look for new episodes of Arts and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music. For photos, transcripts, and other resources, visit getty.edu slash podcasts. Thanks for listening.